Good morning on a nice rainy morning and uh, we'll just camp right in here for the rest of the morning and uh, get into the Word of God, right? We want to fix our eyes on Christ. Do I need a mic? I don't want to disturb them too much. Try to try to keep from yelling too much. Is that a little better? Just project. We will try to project. We'll see what I've got here. And um, we've been in Hebrews. And we were in chapter 11, and I just kind of took the uh, privilege of doing chapter 12, uh, the first few verses last week. And there's so much really powerful, good points to the rest of that section in verses 2 and 3 that I wanted to come back and hit on that because we kind of had to rush through it at the end last week and uh, fix your eyes on Jesus. I mean, can you think of anything better? I mean, that's what it's all about, isn't it? Um, He is the very object of our faith. We talked uh, last week about a race. Christian life is a race, isn't it? It's a race. We have to endure. We have to endure with exertion sometimes. And uh, we know it's a long one, uh, but it's a good race. It's a great race. Well, we have uh, an appointed track that we all have been given to run. It's from the Lord, and we are directed by His purpose and His will to follow that, that track. And so... To do that, to run this race, we make sure to take off the weights, take off any encumbrances, and the sin that uh, so much wants to entangle us and trip us up. We are to be lightly clad as possible, um, to run swiftly, not to have anything encumber us, impede us. We want to relinquish anything that is there causing us to, to run this race. And uh, we are to be strengthened. That means to uh, we don't want to be weak, but we are to be strengthened. And, and today is what we're going to be looking at is how we're strengthened. Uh, we don't put our eyes on the cloud of witnesses that uh, Hebrews 12 spoke about. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses, they're witnesses. They have a testimony. They have a testimony of how they lived by faith. Right? They worked by faith. They lived by faith. Everything they did was by faith. They trusted in God. And so we don't put our eyes on them, but we put our eyes on, on Christ. They are not the object. Faith always has an object, doesn't it? Sitting on a chair, the object is the chair. You had faith. You you had faith when you uh, got in your car and, and took off that it was going to get you here. Uh, the object was the car. Well, when we have faith in Christ, what is our object? It is Christ Himself. The object is Him. And He is our preeminent example. He's the supreme example of one who actually lived by faith. While He was here on earth, He trusted in the Father. And He began that whole course of faith for us to follow because He makes it possible. He's the perfect example, isn't He? And so He shows us what faith is. We've seen what faith is through those witnesses and now we see the supreme example. And He endured the cross to do that. After being set forth now, after being set up by chapter 12, with those great cloud of witnesses, we are to see that Christ is the example, focusing on Him, 
looking unto Jesus, the author, the finisher of our faith. And this is where we get our strength. This is where we get our endurance. This is where we get our motivation. Uh, you want to be strong in Christ? Well, you look at Him. You want to endure? You want to go through this whole race enduring? Look at Him. Just keep looking at Him. And uh, it's, it's good to know that we can run the race much more effectively when we're constantly looking at Him. And so that's, that's what the, uh, the author here is getting at. But there is an author of faith. The beginner of faith, and there is one who completes the faith. He gives us the faith, He starts it, and He completes it, doesn't He? Isn't that great to know? Uh, we don't create faith on our own, do we? We cannot do that. It is actually coming from Him. So, chapter 11 was about these saints exercising the faith. We saw it. We saw the example. We entered into chapter 12, and it was an encouragement by those witnesses to us. Then, it, So it got us into this race. And it showed that we are to cast off the weights, the sin, everything that stifles us. And now, we concentrate on looking at Jesus. Let's grab our Bibles. That's the greatest thing we can grab a hold of right now physically, right? Let's stand. Let's, uh, let's read these three verses again. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider Him who has endured such hostility by sinners against Himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Father, thank You for this section of Your Holy Scripture. Lord, help us to trust You better. The supreme example is Christ. He's the one to look to. He is the ultimate. And that is how we learn to live this life of faith, to actually walk it more and more resembling the very image of Jesus Christ. In His name we pray. Amen. Amen. So, we get into fixing our eyes on Jesus. We just briefly hit on that last week, and so we did not have uh, the time to treat it the way it should be. Jesus actually lived a life of faith. Whenever He came to earth, He was trusting in God the Father. He depended on Him. He's the perfect model then, isn't He? I mean, the witnesses, they are, they're giving testimonies, but here, here's how you live this life of faith. And you think of Jesus, He's depending on His Father, total dependence, absolute dependence. He looked away from all the difficulties. You know what those things are, right? All the discouragements that you get in life. Everybody gets those. You're not alone. And all the opposition. He had those, didn't He? And if you're wondering, oh, did He? Well, you have to do is look at our text and we, we see that too here. But, um, you know, we think that, you know, he took his eyes off of those things, the discouragements, 
kept looking at the Father, trusting in Him. He overcame all the temptations, beat every one of the temptations, didn't He? He performed signs and wonders. Look at Him. He raised people from the dead. You know, he's trusting. He's trusting in the Father in, in all of this. And all of this is summed up in that He trusted. Trusted in God. Trusted in God the Father. Jesus did a life of faith. So we're going to look at that. You know, what's a life of faith? What's it look like? Well, let's look at Jesus and let's find out how this really works. Um, we're just saying that, it, first of all, it's complete dependence upon the Father. Absolute dependence. We know that our next breath is going to come from Him. Everything that we do, physically, mentally, spiritually, it all comes from Him, doesn't it? Absolute dependence. Never did a man, though, so perfectly cast himself on God as did Christ. Perfect laying down himself on the person of, 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 of the Father. And this is Christ the Son relying on the Father. This man, Jesus Christ, did that. Now, now in Proverbs, it's not speaking of the Father and the Son here, but this is our lives right here. This is a probably a couple of verses that so many of uh, people I know have as their favorite verse, actually. Verse 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, your whole being. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, everything you do, acknowledge Him and He'll make your strays path straight. Everybody probably has that as a memory verse. I've heard it many, many times. But boy, does that say it all? That is our life right there. Right there. That's what Jesus did. Absolutely relied on Him. Go to uh, Psalm 22.8. Just a book back from Proverbs. Psalm 22.8. Psalm 22 is actually a prophecy chapter about Christ. In verse 8, it says, Commit yourself to the Lord. Let Him deliver Him. Let Him rescue Him because He delights in Him. Wow. You know what? We commit to Him. He'll deliver us. Let Him rescue Him. You know, you've always heard uh, this answer and I've given it so many times. We'll just trust in the Lord. Uh, turn it over to the Lord. Right? We say those terms, but here it is right here. This is what this is. Let Him rescue Him because He delights in Him. Now, Father delighted in the Son, but this also applies to not only Him, the psalm writer also, but us. He delights in us. And normally I would turn back like at the old building and say, He delights in us, right? As the... He sings over us, right? He takes delight in us. Isn't that great? Isn't that encouraging right there? We need to be reminded of that sometimes. So that's one thing. Complete dependence upon God. When we depend on Him, that's when we know He's always going to do what is best for us. There's a second one. Not only depending on Him, but having communion with Him. Now, communion, I'm not just talking elements here. I'm talking about the sweet fellowship with Christ all day long. Praying always. Constant communion with Him. Never did 
ever another one have the deep, constant realization of the divine presence than Jesus. Nobody has ever had that kind of communion with the Father except for Jesus. But we are told to have that kind of relationship with Him constantly. Jesus was always going to places where He would get off by Himself and the Father to pray. Look at Psalm 16, verse 8. I have set the Lord continually before me because He is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. He's there, right? I think we sang a song spoke about the Lord always being with us, right? Good reminder. I've set the Lord continually before me. Whenever we set Him before us, we realize then He's always with He's always there. But our realization isn't there unless we are focusing on that sense and that He's there. Not always saying words. Look in John chapter 8, verse 29. And He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone. This is Jesus speaking about the Father. For I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. There Jesus is saying, He's the one who sent me here. He's the reason why I'm here. He's not left me alone. Boy, at times it probably seemed like it. It probably looked like it from other people's angles. There He is in the Garden of Gethsemane. The disciples abandon Him. But there He is doing what? Praying to the Father. He's never alone. About Mark chapter one verse thirty five. Mark one thirty-five. In the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went away to a secluded place and was praying there. I think that sets the model for prayer. And how vastly important it is. He, Jesus got away. He left the house, went away to a secluded place, and was praying there. This is not only once or twice, is it? You see it throughout the Gospels. Going up to the mountain to pray to the Father. He's praying God's will. He's going to do it. He almost, almost say, well, why is He even praying? Because He knows what the Father is thinking. But yet in His humanness, he gets in touch with the Father. There is no better perfect communion than there is in the Trinity. I mean, perfect unity. Perfect communion. So what a thing that we can, we can learn from that. And He gives us the power to do it. So He went from Bethlehem, where He was born, all the way to Calvary. Unbroken fellowship. And then we know there were three hours where it turned dark. And this is where He took the sins of the world upon Himself. It's like He was cut off from the Father in a sense. It's awful darkness at that time. And then at the end of those three hours, He said, What? Father, into Thy hands I commit My Spirit. So there He is in absolute perfect 
communion. Did Jesus obey the Father? Of course He did. Obedience to God. And obedience works by love. That's incredible. It's not a matter of, I've got to do this. I've got to do I know it's right, so I'm going to go ahead and do it. I don't want to do it, but I'm going to do it. This kind of faith that he's speaking about is it works by love. You delight to do it because you want to please the object. This object here is, of course, we think of Christ. Obedience is about pleasing God in keeping the Father's commandments. That's what Jesus did to the Father, obeying His will. Look in Galatians chapter 5, verse 6. For in Jesus Christ, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything, but here you go, but faith working through love. Okay, they can they can do the circumcision thing. They can do all the automatic religious things. It's neither here nor there if it's not faith working through love. Faith working through love. That's a that's a key key element. Let's turn to John um, fifteen ten. John fifteen ten. Everybody knows this one. If you keep my commandments. You will abide in my what? Love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. Jesus obeyed. And so He's saying you obey too. If Jesus obeyed, what does that mean for us? Well, of course. Then that's part of faith. Trust and obey, right? I mean, those two words are hand in hand. You can't say you trust if you don't obey, right? And we obey because we trust and it's all in love. It's because we love Him. It's because He loves us. We abide in His love. So it's not just a, it's not a legalistic thing at all, is it? It's because we love Him. And then we turn to Luke 2.49. Luke 2.49. This is whenever Jesus was like uh, 12 years old. Remember he... The parents thought he was lost. And he went to the temple as they were leaving town, going home. And they found him finally. And he said to them, Why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? I had to be about my father's business, right? He went, of course, to uh, the temple and he was defending the faith. He's preaching the gospel of the kingdom there. That was he was about his father's business. That's obedience to God, isn't it? And then having confidence. Confidence not only in the future, but also confidence even right now. It's a looking away from all the the times and and, and things of time. Uh, things that we're wrapped up into in this earth, in this world, and everything we're wrapped up with, you know, that that kind of sense. Uh, we are to rise above all the delusions that the world send us, right? We are deluded by the world and we're to get with, with the Father there. Confident in Him. Uh, having our affections set on where? On heaven. On heaven above. Setting our affections on things above. That's the idea. Automatic things, we know this. This is just an encouragement section. 
We know these, what confidence we can have. So real. Jesus had in His realization of the unseen. You remember in Hebrews 11.1, faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. Faith lives by not sight, but it's trusting in His Word, trusting in Christ so much that you know that whatever happens, whatever God does here, it's going to be for the good. Right? Always. That's trust. And that's what Jesus had all the way through. Even to the point of the cross. Because that was the whole idea. So, absolutely dependent upon the Lord there. He trusted. He submitted His will. Uh, unbroken communion all the way through. Uh, you know, he's in this vivid light that the Father cast upon, burns before him. This kind of life just dwarfs all other kind of lights that are out there. Totally exceeds anything, makes them those lights look dark. Uh, that's what the Father does when we see this. And he set before him this life of faith. He's the pattern, isn't he? So that's why he'd be saying, looking. To Jesus, right? Now, what about us? Well, we are to realize Christ is my life. My life is lived by faith. The whole secret, you want a secret here of living the Christian life? It's a secret. We've got a secret that we need to tell people that are lost in their sins. We have such a secret about His power and what it is to live in Him. The secret is this. Look in Philippians 1.21. You'll know it. You've heard it many times. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. To live right now. That's Christ. How can you lose, right? Whether you're here on this earth or in the presence of God, you can't lose. To live is Christ. How about Galatians 2.20? There's another one. Boy, it's good to be reminded of this one. You know this one. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. Is that a mouthful? Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. It's now Him who takes over. Christ living in, in me and through me. So there is our, our first point there when we're talking about Jesus being the example of enduring. Did He endure? Boy, did He ever. Okay, Let's ponder this a little bit. Let's ponder into Christ. Let's keep looking at Him. We know, okay, we've, we've now established that He lived a life of faith. So if He did it, we can certainly do it because He gives faith to us. Now the second point is pondering the life of Jesus. Looking upon Him. Okay, what does it say in our, in our Hebrews passage? Hebrews 12. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. 
author is one who begins. He's the one who starts it. He is a pioneer. Some translations will say he is the pioneer of our faith. He's the one that that cuts through um, the all the trees. A pioneer that is, you know, discovering the great. Midwest and, and and out all the way to the west, you know, and they'd be pioneers as they would uh, lead, be the first to go there, and then lead people through there. Um, he's the one who purchased the faith for us. He's the pioneer. He died on the cross for our sins. He purchased. He paid it all, right? As our song went. So he's the author of our faith. He's the pioneer. He's the leader. He's the captain. Archege, Ark is arch, arch. You know, you heard of arch enemy, right? The leading enemy, the number one enemy. Well, this is Ark in that sense. That he is our, our first. He went before us. He 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 authored, started our salvation. He's the one who started our salvation. Isn't that incredible? Next one is finisher. He's the author and perfecter of faith. And that's what perfecter means. Um, finisher. The word is related to teleos. And you remember that. Jesus says it is finished. It is teleos. It's completed. It's come to its completion. It's come to its end here. He completes it. He completes our salvation. And I can't help but think of Philippians chapter 1, verse 6 where it says, For I am confident of this very thing, that He who began a good work, there's your pioneering, right? He's the one who started it. He's the one that led us into that. That He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. That means when He comes back. He will do that. To say He won't, puts a pretty bad light on who He is and His character, doesn't it? That means all who are His. It shows right there. That's, that's a great eternal security passage, isn't it? Whatever He started in you, if it's real, He will continue it and He will complete it without any doubt. Because He's doing it. Not based upon our work, but based upon His. I think that's, that's just beautiful. He's the perfecter of the faith. So the author, perfecter. Keep your eyes on Christ Jesus. Why? Because He started and He will complete your faith. That's a good reason to put your eyes on Him, isn't it? Look what He did. Look what He's going to do. I think that's great. Well, The reason which prompted Jesus to suffer though, as it says here, So we see fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before Him. The joy set before... This is His motivation. There's a joy set before... This is the reason which prompted Him as He went through this, this life. This is the reason that He knew He was was going to suffer. The reason He was going to suffer is because of us. But He keeps His eyes on what He's doing. What He is completing here. The joy was set before Him. He knew it was going to be finished. 
He knew He had to go through something terrible, horrible. And that's taken all of sin. It's bad enough to go through the physical things that happened to Him at the cross. But as He took on the sin, can you imagine? The joy that was set before Him. He had the joy. He was looking at the joy through all of this. Now, isn't that great? He has joy not so much as an oh, yeah, give me another stripe on my back. I love it. That's not the case. But He's seeing through all that. This is how He endures. You know, we don't enjoy some of the things that we go through that the Lord is putting us through, but we see where it's going to take us. And we have joy because of that, right? That's that's what He had there. Um, the joy was set before Jesus. Look in Hebrews 10, verse 5-9. through 9. Therefore, when He comes into the world, He says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for Me. This is Jesus speaking to the Father. You you know, it's not just sacrifice of animals and people doing that because that's the religious thing to do. Ultimately, it's this. It's the body that's prepared. That's, that's who the, the Son gets a body. It's prepared for Him. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. Just in those sacrifices themselves, there's no pleasure. They're pointing to Christ. He does to that extent. But there is the real thing that's going to happen at the cross. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written to me to do Your will, O God. You know what we're quoting from? Out of the Old Testament. This is something that was said before Christ was ever even born or incarnated. After saying above, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have not desired nor have you taken pleasure in them which are offered according to the law. Then He said, Behold, I have come to do your will. Who's that? That's the Son. I have come to do your will. This body. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. In verse 10, By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. No more sacrifices needed. It's fulfilled. It's done. Those Old Testament rituals and all of that, it's fulfilled in the person of Christ. And there's Christ really speaking in the Old Testament through prophecy. And of course, here in Hebrews, the Hebrew writer picks up on that and says, that's Christ. That's the Messiah that He was talking about. A body prepared for Him to do the sacrifice. Boy. So Joyce, or I, there was joy there. <laughs> Rejoice, right? Uh, joy. Joy that Jesus has. So He looks beyond all the agony. He looks beyond the torment. He looks beyond everything that is causing all sorts of havoc with Him because He sees that this is pointing to something more. You know, the, would you say the pain was worth it? The pain that Jesus had? Absolutely. That's the idea in our... Hebrews section here. Uh, you can think of the tribulation, the trial, persecution, all that suffering. We have to endure those too. We're in the race. The race, by the way, the word for that is what? Agone or agony. 
This is our race. There is agon there. There are sufferings. But remember, oh, if I put my eyes on Christ, what do I see? Well, for one thing I see is a suffering Jesus for me. Does my suffering ever compare to what Jesus went through? Mm-mm. Not even close. We are to endure because the joy is set before us. It's there. It's at the end of the race. It's pointing to. Of course, we have, we have joy most of the time in our lives here. We're talking about an ultimate joy though, aren't we? Really. We are to endure. To endure and to endure. Look in Hebrews 11.10 and you see the people of faith there that uh, we looked at so often in that chapter. Uh, if you think of um, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, such. Okay, in verse 10, for he was looking for the city which has foundations whose architect and builder is God. It wasn't a city here on earth or a country there. Ultimately, it really was pointing to the city of God. Talking about the new Jerusalem here. And this is built by God, not by man in that case. That's how Abraham made it through. He looked beyond his circumstances. That's really what the Hebrew writer is bringing out. Really practical, isn't it? Let's look in chapter... Uh, still in chapter 11, right? Look in verse 20. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau even regarding things to come. Abraham looking to that city, things to come. Isaac, his son, looking to things to, to come. That's motivation. Is Look in verse 26. Consider This is Moses. Considering the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Moses. Now, and he had the best possible situation that you could have as far as a life of ease. You know, this is the prince of Egypt. He had everything that he needed. All the best education. He had all the money that he needed. He had, he had it all. At least he thought he did. Until he realized what God had called him for and he considered, he weighed the reproach of Christ all the sufferings of Christ, the Messiah, that He was looking to, He measured that against everything that He had here in Egypt. And you would think, well, any man would take the things of Egypt. Look where he's at. No, He knew what was ahead. Egypt only lasts so long, right? So, that's just some examples there. Jesus endured the cross. Hebrews says, in Hebrews 12, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Endured. Hupo meno, right? He remained under it. The cruelest of all deaths. We're all familiar with that. It was served only for the slaves and the vilest of criminals. That's who the crucifixions were for. They took him, threw him down upon his beaten back, 
hardly anything left of his back after they beat him with the stripes. Iron stakes were driven through his holy flesh. He was riveted to a cross and he hung and of course they dropped that cross in upon in the in the earth and when they would do that into that hole there it just shook his whole body and of course in Psalms it talks about every joint was dislocated a sickening thud as it as it hit there as they dropped that cross into the earth it would hurt all the the every time he's take a breath his back would scratch up against that wooden cross the sun beating down upon his body as he's out there on the cross just a bloody mess nobody could even identify who he would be if they didn't know who he was his fever gets higher and higher it's rising it's dehydration that now sets in and his tongue cleaves to the roof of his mouth as Psalm 22 said like a broken pottery and added to that insult are two thieves on his side and he's in the middle and if that means anything to you you'll say oh that meant that he was even worse than murderers and and thieves he's the worst of the three as he hangs in between them this is Jesus look at Jesus right so this morning we're looking at Jesus we see him as the example for us now we take a look at this enduring the cross now we could have just passed on through that we know he endured the cross but when you start thinking about this agony that he really took on wouldn't you think that this was enough to suffer for our sins wouldn't that be enough right there <laughs> when you say that's enough But you know that the worst suffering is yet to come. He took it all, didn't He? That's why it says He paid it all. All of our sins here. There is a spiritual suffering that far outweighed any of the physical sufferings that came upon Him. His soul was literally dying on that cross in a sense. There was a total separation between Him and the Father. A separation in that that communion that He had for just a little bit of time now as it gets dark there as He's on the cross. There's a conflict of the ages happening. All the fury and the rage of God's judgment upon sin happened during that time. God took out on His Son what should have been taken out on us. He demands perfect judgment. And so He pours it out on His Son. Think of all the sins that you have done, you you will do before He comes back. Every one of those was paid when that happened. And that's why I say, if it's already been paid, He doesn't pay for the ones that are not His, does He? If He did, then there would be... a double indemnity, uh, you know. How can one pay for it and yet at the same time they have to pay for their own sins? If one doesn't trust Christ though, they will spend eternity paying for their sins. Eternity would not be long enough to pay for those sins. But in this short time, Christ paid for all of our sins, the people who are His. It's, it's almost like, and I, I put these words uh, very humbly, it's like, God taking His wrath on God. 
because Jesus never lost His Godhood there. God did not die. But the person of Christ, in Him being Jesus there, there was the death. He has to die. That's the only way that can be paid. So God turned on God. All the hatred and anger is put out on Him at that time. And it says in Isaiah 53, this is in God's Word, it pleased the Father to bruise Him. It pleased the Father to do that because this was the plan. It was the plan that was made long before the foundation of the world. That's mind-staggering. And it'll send you back beyond the present time that we live in and you can't understand eternity, can you? That's right. He bruised the Son, but He crushed the head of the serpent. His heel was bruised. The head of the serpent was cut off. That's good to know. He's innocent. He did not sin. He did not blaspheme. He didn't preach heresy. All those things they claimed that He did. He did everything there was to fulfill all the law perfectly down to the very smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And so a holy God turns His back on His Son in a a sense. Be careful with our language there, but He not only received the torture of His generation at that time, but every generation... He received our torture that we should have had. It was it was you who killed him, put him on the cross. It was me who put him on that cross. You know what? I'm right there with the crowd. Crucify him! Crucify him! I can't imagine it, but yeah, that's the sinners. I can hear my own voice. It's the loudest. Crucify him! It's my sins that placed him there. It was me. I nailed my sins to Him. My sins nailed Him to the cross. It's my sins. My iniquities pierced His hands. My wicked deeds pierced His feet. I, who have always been loved by Christ, I am the one who stabbed His side and pierced Him. And He always loved me. And He loved me when my sins were put on Him. I broke His heart. Wow. Think about it. He endured the cross. Can you see how that was the joy because He knew what went beyond that? He had to literally die physically. Jesus the man. So the next one says this, He endured the cross. He despised the shame. He despised the shame. They mocked our Lord. He had the greatest shame that a human could ever have. Look at Jesus. Look at the shame that was put on Him. Nobody has ever endured the public shame in a mockery that our Lord endured because He is the Lord And there have been many men shamed by society who committed suicide 
They didn't die for people's sins. They had shame. That shame. Was it for God to become a man? I mean, He knew that this was going to happen. This is part of it. Isaiah said He was a man of sorrows. Grieved. At the same time, He's shamed by the religious people of the time of being a blasphemer. He was accused of one of the greatest crimes, blaspheming God. Matter of fact, it was the greatest crime. It was an insult to the holy soul. Wasn't it? Isn't that an absolute insult to be put in this manner? To be despised that He was? They insulted His position. They mocked Him as being a king. So they say, oh, here's the king. So what did they do? They gave Him a crown. Mocked His power. Put a robe on Him of royalty. Kind of robe that they so did. And they derided Him and said, uh, as He was even on the cross, let Him save Himself since He's the Son of God. Boy, how wicked is man. How evil can man get? There it is, man crucifying God. Amazing. That's depravity of man at its worst, isn't it? Can you think of the lowest of the lowest? That's it right there. The word despised there, when it says he despised the shame, it means to consider it little. All the stuff that they were doing, all the shame they were putting on it, he despised it. He counted it all as little. It's not anything. You consider that kind of... Uh, the ridicule they're doing is very low. Very little. They stripped our Lord of His garments. He hung naked, bearing our shame. Are you looking at Him? Are you seeing Him? Looking at Jesus? It was God who came down. He covered the guilty of their nakedness. He covers our nakedness. Our sin. But on Golgotha, He's disrobed that they would see His nakedness and see His shame. So, do you think you've ever been embarrassed? Do you think you've ever been shamed? Look at Jesus, the author finisher of your faith. Keep running. Keep running. And then it said that He sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Keep looking at Jesus. It doesn't end there. We know He raises from the dead. This is the captain's triumph here. We're talking about the captain, right? The pioneer. The captain of our faith. He entered into joy. This is what he anticipated. This is the joy that he looked to. He knew it was going to happen. He was crowned with glory and honor. He sat down at the right hand. Sat down means the work had done. That's the great high priest. He was the great high priest when he was on the cross. He was the priest and the sacrifice. He sat down. High priest would never sit down because their work was never done. Constantly and ever before the Lord in their serving Him, they would be 
sacrificing, going into the holies, doing their priestly thing every day, never sitting down. There's no place to sit down there. Jesus sat down because the work was finished. And we think of the right hand of the throne of God, and that is power. The right hand is power, the throne of God. This is absolute dominion. Sitting at the right hand, the place of supreme sovereignty. We think of Matthew 28.18. gives a great commission in Matthew 28. And in that great commission it says, And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to Me in heaven and on earth. This is a man who made claims that were terribly bold. He has to be either a crazy man, a lunatic, or somebody who's just lying, trying to get attention. Or he is who he claimed to be. To say, all the authority, all the creation, and all eternity, it's been given to me. Wow, Jesus. I mean, even if that be the case, let's don't be so boastful here, right? No, this is absolute truth. They need to know that He has the authority. Based upon that authority, that's why we can go out and make disciples of all nations. That's why we can give the Gospel to people because Jesus Christ is the King. He's authority and we're telling people about the King. And that they too can be coming into the kingdom. You can give them the Word of God. Give them the Gospel. Hebrews 12 says the right hand of the throne of God. The throne speaks of the judge. He's been entrusted with judgment. He's the judge. Set down at the right hand of God. Well, what does this have to do with us? Well, we have entered into the rest of Christ. Let's look at Revelation 13, verse 14. He rested. He sat down, right? means a place of rest in a sense. And so do we. We can rest in Christ. I'm going to save some time. Let's go. I think I wrote down a wrong verse here for that one. Uh, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 8. For if Joshua, all the way back in the Old Testament, all right, if Joshua had given them rest, the people that are in the desert, right? Moses had been out there, and then of course Moses died. Joshua then takes over being captain. He leads them. He leads them into the promised land, doesn't he? If Joshua had given them rest at that time, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. What's the Sabbath rest? Verse 10, For the one who has entered his rest 
has Himself also rested from His works as God did from His. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest. That would be somebody who's professing to be a Christian, but who is not. They've not entered the rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. All those people out there fell out in the wilderness. They died. Not entering the rest. They didn't get into the holy land. Here we are, as Christians, we have entered the rest. It's the rest of Christ. The people of God. And isn't that great to know? We now have rest. Revelation 14, 13. Thank you. Thank you. Let's let's turn there. I turned them around, didn't I? Okay, you saved me, Bob. <laughs> Save me from my shame. <laughs> okay. Yes, I must have dyslexia. Something related to it. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so that they may rest from their labors. For their deeds follow with them. Thank you, Bob. Appreciate that. There it is right there. Blessed are the ones who die in the Lord so that they may rest from their labors. Now there is the absolute rest. We've entered spiritually as Hebrews 4 or Hebrews 13 is where ultimately these works that we're doing here on earth will be completed, done. No more the persecution and all the things that went with that. So uh, an absolute rest, new bodies. And then in Hebrews chapter 12, we get the deal of judgment. The throne. We will sit on the throne with Him, won't we? We will one day, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 2 and 3, it says we will one day judge angels who at this time are above us, much exceeding over us, but there will be a, a day when we will judge angels having judgment. We will rule and reign with Him. I think it says in Revelation 2. Now, we go to verse 3. Are we covering these words okay a little bit better this week? <laughs> Consider this. Consider Him. We already said, fix your eyes on Jesus. Because of what you've just heard, or reminded, you got reminded of all the things that happened on the cross, but all the way to glory, right? Him being King. Now He says, consider Him. Therefore, consider Him. For, consider Him who has endured such hostility by sinners. Consider Consider means to compute. It actually means to compare one to another. Uh, how about comparing our proportion of our sufferings to Christ's sufferings? Can you compare those two and really make them equal? <laughs> no way. We, we wouldn't even think about it, right? And that's the idea of consider. Consider that. Consider His suffering and, and, and ours. Uh, who He was. The place He took. The, 
perfect character that He is, the works that He did, all the gross injustice that came upon Him, the persecution that was so cruel to Him. What are our trials, our little things that we go through on a daily basis compared to Him? This is what the Hebrew writer is saying. And I know we've probably said that many times. Yeah, it's nothing to do with what Christ... And we can even look at other people. In Hebrews 11, say the same thing. But all the agonies that He had... Consider Him, right? How about the excellency of His person? Jesus Christ is most excellent. Consider Him and His excellencies. None other than the Lord of glory. Look at that glorious Lord. Consider Him. The Beloved of the Father. The Creator of heaven and earth. Of the whole universe. Consider His opposition. He was derided as the prophet as he as he was. He was a king, you know. He's a prophet, priest, and king. And there's the king. He was mocked. I think the most utmost contempt that one could ever have that people had. It was so evil, so malicious, wicked. What are the words that we can say? But there's the opposition. Consider Him who has endured such hostility by sinners. That's, that's the, some of the things that we're talking about. This hostility against Himself. And then we close with this, the very last phrase. What's this all about as we look at Him, as we think of Him, His life, His death, His burial, His resurrection, His ascension, and His living in us, and we live in Him. And then one day glory is awaiting us, right? In glorified bodies. I mean, that's going from from the foundations of the earth before that all the way up in past the millennial kingdom into glorious state that it is. Think about that. Christ is at every point. He's at every location, isn't He? What's the remedy against being weary and tired? Has anybody here ever gotten tired? I'm not talking physically tired. We all know that happens. Sometimes we get tired in the race. Not tired of God. Not tired of even the church. Not tired of... Just tired. And it gets... Sometimes it seems like it's a long stretch. Yeah, agon. Or our modern day word for that is what? A marathon. Yeah, it can be tough, but we just keep going. Don't ever give up. Don't quit. We can't have that in our vocabulary. Don't quit. Keep going. Finish well. Finish good. Well done, faithful steward. That's what we want to hear. We want to finish well. We want to have a faith that is much stronger when at the point of death than we had way back when we were younger. Because it should be stronger. Don't give up. That's what fuels our hearts. Because God has such a love for us that we have a love for God. And we want people to have that desire to have that joy, don't we? That is joy when we find our peace in Him. 
So, if Jesus had borne so much pain and agony, all the stuff that He bore up under, you are not running a race by yourself, are you? You look at the cloud of witnesses. You look at present day saints that you go to church with, people you worship with. You look at them. They encourage you on. We're not running alone. Everybody has their own battles. We have our wars, but we're fighting with each other uh, as far as having the shields. We're on each other's side. And so therefore, when we realize that we are warriors, that we're runners, and we're here to win. We are here to win. Every one of us wants to win. We want to have that kind of faith, that trust in Him no matter what. So we see here as He closes out, as you consider Him, as you have your eyes focused on Christ, what's the reason? So that you will not grow weary. And that means exhausted. So that you will not grow weary or exhausted and lose heart. Think about it. Look at Christ. He is the answer. That's the secret. That's not a secret, is it? And what we just said was everything that we already knew. But we needed to be reminded, didn't we? Chapter 11, chapter 12, into that part. The rest of it is about the discipline that is brought upon a training that we have in the Christian life. But we will celebrate the resurrection Sunday next week and we will continue to speak about the things that Christ did. What did I Did I say resurrection? Reformation. Thank you. You guys are correcting me. I'm glad you do that. <laughs> we want to get it right. It's kind of like what in baseball and in the in the playoffs where they they have uh, uh, they show the the, the play again, right? Replay. A replay. Yeah, there we go. A word. I can't even remember. A replay. They, they, and they keep showing it over and over and over. Well, they want to get it right. So, thank you for letting me get it right here today. Let's close. Father, You certainly are a holy God. And we are in awe of this eternal plan of the ages. We are amazed... We stand back and we look at the Son, the Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, may, may we think about all the things before there was ever a foundation. And we don't know all the things that were going on, but it was a perfect communion with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we know that the plan was made out, the plan of redemption and salvation, and the plan to bring us as wicked sinners, evil as we were, and to be brought into Your family and to be changed. And Lord, we focus our eyes on Christ, all the things that He did, that He's doing now for us, and what He will continue to do all the way into the future. We cannot say enough thanks. He has led us all the way. He is our Captain. We look to the Captain for our orders. In Jesus' name we pray, Amen.